So I gave a title to my message after uh, I was asked to give a summary of, of the message earlier this week. So that didn't make it anywhere. So I'll, I'll say it. Life in sync. Our life in sync with God's life. Or, a more popular way, Billy Bounds, your life. I see you're not familiar with Billy Bouncing. My grandson, who's 10, watches these Billy Bouncers, and they kind of coordinate everything in their body to sink and all, all, all that stuff. I wouldn't even begin to coordinate my two fingers. My favorite term for disciple is the word apprentice. It speaks to me very clearly of uh, who is a disciple and what a disciple does. When I was 14, I'd been out of school for a couple of years already. My brother took me to a friend of his who was a master woodcarver. He thought I should learn a trade. So I became an apprentice to a master woodcarver. The first six months, I did a lot of watching, observing, seeking to understand before I started carving anything. I cleaned the shop. I fetched water when he was thirsty. I bought the food when he was hungry. I ran errands, errands and watched and watched and watched to learn the rhythm and way of life of a woodcarver. And little by little, I started carving this stroke of a chisel and that stroke of a chisel, and, and soon ornamental designs were coming to life. I am a furniture woodcarver. And five years later, practicing all the good habits that I learned, I became, lo and behold, a master woodcarver. Now that is discipleship or apprenticeship at its best. Jesus said, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus said to those apprentices who were yoked or tethered to him and who learned from him the rhythm of life in the kingdom of God. Let me ask you a question. Do you find the Christian life easy and light? Many of us have grown up in churches with a long list of do's and don'ts. The list of do's is smaller than the list of don'ts. You know, you don't smoke, you don't chew, and you don't go with girls that do kind of list. And not much other help to tell the difference of do 
of doing the do's. Do you find obedience a grudge or a joy? Easy and routine, or do you just grin and bear it when you have to obey? So this is how we build a wrong narrative of who God is in the minds of people. Jesus said that we can learn the rhythm of life in the kingdom of God and become his accomplished apprentices in our marriage, in all of our relationships with friend or foe, in the shop, and in the world at large. Now, the church is a learning community, and if you saw the announcements before the worship service began this morning, you would have seen a cadre of of learning opportunities, learning the rhythm of the life of Jesus, the rhythm of love. And we need to learn love. It doesn't seem to come naturally to us. Loving Christian communities, that is communities whose first impulse is to love and who actually act in love, are not born that way. Individuals are not born that way either. They are made by being taught to do all that Jesus commanded us to do as a priority. To be like him, we must absorb his teachings. As you go into your everyday life, he said, make apprentices of me. Submerge them into the life of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And teach them everything I have taught you. And by living this way, they too will come to be apprentices day in and day out for the rest of their earthly lives and even to to eternity and beyond. As Buzz Lightyear and Woody (laughs) like to say in Toy Story. You gotta love grandchildren. You learn a lot from them. I am sorry to say, though, that this loving way of life is not the most common thing in our midst as the church in North America. In some surveys, we are pegged as judgmental, better-than-thou kind of people. We don't have to be. It's impossible to be judgmental and loving at the same time. Have you discovered that? It's hard to want to be right and loving at the same time. Were you ever in a heated argument where you were trying to prove you were right? Have you noticed how unloving you were at that time? Now we must speak truth to power. But truth is always wrapped in love. 
It's the beef inside the buns. And I can't believe I just used that illustration. <laughs> Being a vegetarian. Direct, yes. To the point, yes. But judgmental never looked good on us. It is not our best suit. And anything we can do with anger, we can do better without anger. That's tweetable, and that's not mine. That comes from Dallas Willard. How do we train our hearts and our minds, our bodies, in such a way as the rule of love comes to dominate all of our being? How do we get there as a rule of life? What is the curriculum for this way of living? Whatever profession you have, you have to learn or to master a body of knowledge in order to do it well. If you're a teacher, a plumber, a doctor, an artist, you have to master a body of knowledge so that when you possess it and when you have learned it so well, you can predict reasonably the kind of job that you will do. Tell me, what is the body of knowledge that you possess and have learned so well that you can predict reasonably well that you will succeed in the Christian life and be in a growth pattern toward Christ-likeness? I think that's a sobering question. Let's look at Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 to 17. And let's pretend you are hearing this passage for the first time, and I am Paul's messenger, and I've come to your church, and I'm going to speak these words to you. So remain seated. You may want to look on the screen if you miss something that I've said from this. Let me read those words to you. Maybe I should have Ginger still come here and, and quote. Ginger, are you here? No? Okay. She has memorized the whole book of Colossians, by the way, and Maybe some of you have already, but Colossians 3 is so special. So if you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above and not on things that are of the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him. 
in glory. Put to death, therefore, whatever in you is earthly, fornication, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming on those who are disobedient. These are the ways you also once followed when you were living that life. But now you must get rid of all such things, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive language from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have stripped off the old self with its practices and have clothed yourselves with the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge according to the image of its creator. In that renewal, there is no longer Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian or Scythian, slave and free, but Christ is all and is in all. As God's chosen ones and beloved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Bear with one another, and if anyone has a complaint against another, forgive each other, just as the Lord has forgiven you. So you also must forgive. Above all, clothe yourselves with love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in the one in the one body, and be thankful. Let the work, word of Christ dwell in you richly. Teach and admonish one another in all wisdom, and with gratitude in your hearts, sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. That's what a rule of life, that's what a curriculum for Christ's likeness sounds like and looks like. There is no better summary of this rule and curriculum of Christ's likeness than here we find in Colossians 3. It's the most succinct summary of what the Christian life is all about. In fact, the whole book of Colossians is a practical text on being conformed to the image of Jesus. When the shape of your heart and soul takes on the shape of the heart, mind, and soul of Jesus, conformity or likeness is beginning to happen. This conformity in holiness and godliness is a theme that runs throughout the Bible, Old Testament and New Testament. Be holy, 
for your Father in heaven is holy. Be conformed to the image of God in holiness and love. In Romans 8, 29, uh, we know from Paul that God decided on the likeness of his Son from eternity past to invade all of our lives. And Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3, 18, that this conformity is a way of life of salvation today. And in John 3, 1 to 2, John echoes Paul by saying, Beloved, we are God's children now. That is, we are made in the image of God now. But what we will be, we don't know yet. But we will when he is revealed. What we do know is this. When he is revealed, we will be like him. For we will see him as he is. And all who have this hope purify, make themselves holy, just as he is holy and pure. So there you have it. God ordained that his son Jesus is his ultimate model for the life he intended for Adam and for Eve, for you and for me today. And all the writers of the scriptures believe that that transformation of the human being into Christ-likeness is very possible and doable. We can change and our lives can become permeated by the overflowing and overflowing by divine love, just as Jesus' life was. Now the question to you is, deep, 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 very deep in your heart, do you actually believe this? Let me show you how from Colossians 3, the pattern or learning and living it takes to be conformed to the image of Christ. Obviously, I cannot go through the passage and explain it all. I'm just going to highlight two or three things for this curriculum of Christ-likeness idea that I'm presenting to you this morning. First, we set our hearts and our minds on things above and on Christ and not on earthly things. And second, we put to death vices and everything bad in us, and we put on virtues. Isn't that simple? We, we set our minds and our hearts on things above, and we remove everything that is bad in our lives as we put on the virtues. How do we do these things? First then, it says, set your heart, that is your will, and your spirit. Your will is everything you have say over. It's, it's your ability to decide. To set your heart on Christ means to seek, to search, or to desire Christ and the things of Christ. Christ, Paul believed, was in the things above and in the things all around us. 
One helpful explanation of, of what that is, the things above, is in Philippians chapter 4 and verse 8, where Paul encourages us to seek and to search and desire the things that are above, like, like truth and honor, justice and purity, whatever is pleasing and commendable to God, what is excellent. And in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 13, it tells us what that is. The greatest of all of these, the most excellent of all of these, is love and worthy of praise. All of these things that are above. Now think on these things. Think systematically on these things. Give it some intentionality. Take time on a regular basis and think about these things. Set your heart on things that are above. This is Christian living at its very best. And it's local and it's ordinary. As Eugene Peterson used to say. He said, Christianity, spirituality, Christianity is local and ordinary. It happens in the kitchen. It happens in the bedroom. It happens on the job. It happens wherever you are. It happens in the daily rhythm of life, not on top of a mountain or a potential trip to Mars. A long time ago, we got to get to camping, right? <laughs> a long time ago, we got the notion to go camping. Friends invited us to go with them. But this camping trip was a very, very special trip in every way. First, it was camping sauvage, or wilderness camping. We were in Quebec at that time, so we knew it as camping sauvage. We knew nothing about this way of camping. And as a Lebanese, the whole notion of camping is foreign to our culture. Now, why would you leave your house and go live in a tent for a few days? Like, that sounds so crazy to me. Strange. But we needed to learn how to start a fire from scratch because we were nowhere near any civilization. We arrived late and had to pitch our tents in the dark with four kids in tow. The mosquitoes were legendary. <laughs> I think they were the inspiration of many of Hitchcock's movies. <laughs> oh, I forgot. We had to park our cars about a mile away from where we camped and lug, out, lug up uh, everything uh, up the path to the place where we camped. The kids started wondering if their names were Isaacs. And if I were Abraham, disguised as their dad. Our friends knew that what, what, what they were doing, and, and we had to rely on them a lot. But after all the fuss and all the difficult difficulties of setting camp, all, after all of that had passed, we found ourselves sitting outside the tent looking at the stars. 
the image is still etched in, on my mind. Images have that kind of staying power, don't they? That's why it's so very important that you be careful what you let penetrate the lenses of your eye. The sky was lit up by stars like I'd never seen before. So many that no one could count them. Well, not even Abraham, right? It took me back to Abraham when God took him on top of a mountain and showed him the stars and told him his descendants will be as numerous as the stars. And I thought, I'm seeing the same thing that Abraham saw. There were no lights, no city lights, not even close. Like you couldn't see the front of your hands. But you looked upward and the studded sky with stars like jewels. Flickering, bright and fading. The heavens truly declared the glory of God. And I felt so small as if I needed reminding. And then we got treated to a phenomenon known as Aurora Borealis or the Northern Light. What a display of color and light in amazing streaks and dancing configurations, better than any 4th of July fireworks. And so we came and, and we were awed by it, and I am still awed by it. We watched, we delighted, and our minds were enthralled with God in creation. And that night, I learned to enthrall my mind with God the first notion of a curriculum for Christ-likeness. The next effect of this is the constant bombardment of awareness of God's goodness in nature and in his word and in Christ, on our will, on our spirit, as sheer delight. These were the things that were on Christ's heart. The psalmist says in Psalm 27, 4, uh, that he also wanted the same thing to delight in God. He said, one thing I have asked of the Lord, this is what I seek. That I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. And behold, the beauty of the, of the Lord. And to seek him in his temple. This is one of the secrets of imitation or conformity or transformation in our apprenticeship to Jesus. Watch God and watch for God and for what he does and learn where he is in your life. Enthrall your heart and mind with his presence. Jesus saw flowers and delighted in the works and presence of God. They were dressed as if they were going to a ball. He thought that rain was, was a grace from God that falls on all people, good or bad. He was watching everything around him 
spoke of the glory of God and, and he enthralled his mind with God. The ravens had plenty to eat without toiling much. Now how did he happen by these observations? He watched for God in everything and enthralled his mind with God. He saw the beauty of God by being in his presence in worship. In the book, The Critical Journey, the authors write about two ways most people come to God. One, we come to God out of a sense of need. We have a need, and we haven't found any answer to it. When I came to Jesus, I had a strong sense of wanting to belong, to be rooted in my life, because I was not anchored in any way. I was like a ship drifting here and there. And God sent me a, a loving community of summer missionaries that loved me in my need. The second sense out of which we come to God is a sense of awe. We see what we cannot explain, like the star-studded skies, and we feel small. We hold a, min we hold a minute ago born baby for the first time. I felt the sense of awe when, when our twins were born. I held them both in my arms, 3'7 and 5'12 pounds. I turned their faces toward each other, and I felt their gaze into each other's eyes. Now, I know babies can hardly see squat at this stage of development. I taught, I taught lifespan development at the seminary. But there was magic in that moment. I felt like they were saying, so yeah, it's been you all along that's been robbing me of my food. <laughs> so need and awe. How did you come to God, to Jesus? And if you haven't yet, I want to put this question as a challenge to you. What is likely to bring you to Jesus? Need or awe? Or maybe both? The second verb in Colossians 3, 1 to 5 says, set your mind on things above, not on earthly things. And this verb means to think, to observe, to understand. Focus on heavenly things, not on earthly things. Focus on God. Delight yourself in God and the things of God, not the things of earth. And all the biblical writers knew this reality of delighting in Yahweh, the God of Israel. They knew the history of God's people, how God delivered them from Egypt and Pharaoh's army. 
He gave them a land. He gave them his presence in the temple. He gave them a garden full of blessings. He gave them a Messiah. He promised would deliver them. Delight in that God who lives up to his reputation and his promises in Christ. May I offer you a couple of easy and practical ways of training and upping your capacity to delight in Christ and the things that are above. It's an old practice that teaches us to focus our minds on the things of God so that the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. It's what I often do and have done for years. The practice is called by a Latin word, examen, E-X-A-M-E-N. Perhaps you are familiar with it. And it's an examination on a daily basis of two important facets of your life. First, each night we examine our consciousness of God during that day. You review your day and you study the times when you were conscious of, conscious of God. You take a few minutes and you intentionally review your day and think about how God was present to you that day. And you become grateful in reviewing your day for God's presence to you. So in essence, you're asking the question on a daily basis, where did I see God in my life today? When was I conscious of his presence? And you give him thanks. Does that sound like something useful for you to practice? It certainly has been for me. The second, you examine your conscience. Not your consciousness, your awareness of God, but you examine your conscience. What went wrong today? You review the day. You discover where you went or acted against your conscience or against love. And you ask for forgiveness. And Lord, forgive me. And you look forward to do better tomorrow without repeating the same wrongs of today. Pretty simple. An examination of your consciousness, your awareness of God's presence, and of your conscience. Where did I see God and be thankful? And what went wrong and seek forgiveness? This way of delighting in God is transformative and will certainly draw you and me closer to intimacy with Christ and the changes we seek in our lives. I also would offer this. Cycle through the gospel on a continual basis until the very last day of your life in order to learn Jesus. God is Christ-like 
And in God, there's no unchristlikeness at all. There is nothing that is not Christ-like. And when you learn Christ, you're learning God, and you begin to delight in him. Every day, take a portion of the Gospels. At times, take time to read a whole Gospel in one sitting. Delight in Jesus. So that's the first part of the curriculum for Christ-likeness. The second part. The second element of our curriculum for Christ-likeness is the transformation of our character through the habits of our lives and the practices that are attached to those habits. Some of our habits lead to good, some to bad ways of being in the world. Paul tells us in, in Colossians chapter 3, verse 5, verse 8, verse 9, he says, put off. Take off from our lives any hint of sexual immorality and greed, impurity, evil desire, unruled passions. He also says in verse 8 that we need to get rid of anger, wrath, malice, slander, bad language, and deception of other people. These are sinful and destructive heart habits that we must put off. And we have learned to do these things by default. Did anybody teach you how to be deceptive? Believe it or not, at about 18 months, maybe two years of age, I had finished teaching the last day and brought home chocolates and gifts that the kids had had given to me. We put them in the fridge right after school. And we went outside to do a little bit of work on the fence that needed to be repaired. We left the twins sitting around and we would check on them every few minutes, you know. We came out and worked on the fence and we came back in about 20 minutes. And they were in the kitchen. We're barely two years old. And each of them had chocolate all over their faces and they, had, they were holding pears and they were hiding them behind their backs. Now I ask the question, who taught them to do this? If you don't believe in original sin, just watch any two-year-old. These are ingrained in us, and they must be uprooted. The way to do, to do this is not to tackle all of these habits head on. You'll go crazy doing it. The better way is to fill our hearts with virtuous heart habits that we put on. And these are the habitual ways to show compassion... Kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, forgiving grievances against one another, and letting the peace and the love of Christ rule everything in your life and harmonize everything about you. Good habits can also become ingrained in us. And and the more they become ingrained in us, the more uprooted the other ones become. 
Imagine letting peace and love rule in all your dealings with others versus deceiving one another. Imagine that rather than degrading ourselves and others by sexual immorality, we demonstrate compassion, humility, and patience with our own sexuality. Imagine that instead of handling things with anger, we instead forgive any grievance against us. Is that really possible? If it's not, then we are doomed to crappy living all the time. Oops. I did it again. Did you know that the Backstreet Boys were in Kansas City last night? Who knew that detail? Oh, just a few of you. Shame, 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 shame. My daughters went to it. So here's the definition for crappy. Even though Ryan is not here. It is slang for anything that is markedly inferior in quality. Lousy. Of extremely bad quality. Crappy. Such as this way... This was a crappy wine, as if there is any other kind. (laughs) Or burger, or weather. Something in poor condition is crappy as in crappy weather. Cambridge Dictionary says, sick is a synonym for crappy. It said, he was really feeling crappy or sick. I digress. You can tell Ryan I said that. How do we transcend bad camping experiences? We delight in God and we use disciplines or soul training exercises that help us become more and more like Jesus. In verse 13, Paul Paul is saying that that we could practice stability by staying in relationships when it is hard to do so. In verse 16, Paul implies practicing Sabbath rest as we take a day off to worship God together as we are doing just now. He also implies that submission to one another is another discipline that will, that will be helpful in conquering our habits of pride and anger. In chapter 4, verse 2 of Colossians, Paul adds another soul training exercise, prayer alertness in times of being alone and quiet with God. Now, these self-denying practices help us to put off the old self and put on the new self. They work in an indirect kind of way. You do this and that happens as a consequence. At the same time, there are soul training exercises that help us put on or add virtue to our lives. Being in community and having caring relationships. That's what our CLCs are for. We practice being thankful, be thankful, sing thankful, Say and do everything in thankfulness. 
to God? And let the word of Christ dwell in you richly? That is, practice the soul-changing exercise of study, meditation, singing together. Practice God's presence in all you do and pray for others. You get the idea. Fill your life with these virtues by practicing prayer, Bible saturation, and being thankful. Here's another practice I offer you to help with this part of the curriculum for Christ-likeness. Prayer was never far from the mouth of Jesus. Quite a while ago, I discovered what is called breath prayers. And it's been a constant help to me. Whatever grateful attitude I may have, whatever care for others I possess, they are the direct results from these sustaining prayers in my life. I'll give you a couple of my favorites. You can come up with your own very easily, breath prayers. L-J-C-S-O-G-H, mamas. Abbreviated often as L-H-M. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me. You know the way they, the way Greek Orthodox seminaries train their priests is that the first year of their lives they teach them to say this prayer 500 times a day a thousand times a day until it becomes a regular part of their breath Lord Jesus Christ Son of God have mercy on me Lord Jesus Son of God have mercy on me or Lord, have mercy. What a wonderful way to punctuate minutes, hours, days with breath prayers like that. I'm bombarded with news during the day. You are too. And much of that demands, Lord, have mercy. Much of that. Another prayer, Lord, show me a sign of your favor. Another version of this, Lord, let me have favor in his or her eyes. Or Lord, just simply favor me. Lord, show me a sign. Lord, I trust in you. Lord, I love you. Lord Jesus, have mercy. What would be a breath prayer that is close to your heart? Maybe a portion of a verse of scripture. Something meaningful to you. And perhaps no one else. Jesus challenged his disciples to become experts of what he taught them and to pass it on to others. And we cannot pass on to others what we ourselves do not 
possess. That is what we must do. The church is for discipleship, and discipleship implies learning and having a curriculum that undergirds our life, delighting in God and practicing the habits that change our character. Pray with me. Lord Jesus, we have come for a rest in community today to allow ourselves to hear from heaven above, to hear your offer and your invitation to us to negotiate this life in the manner of Jesus. A standing invitation for every day we live, not just on Sunday. This week, remind us often of these two major ideas with which we can rule our life, to enthrall our minds with you, your presence, your doings, your actions, your gifts, your blessings, and to practice habits that will uproot any evil in us. This is your promise to us. This is your gift to us. We believe it and we trust ourselves to it. I ask in Jesus' name. Amen.